0: You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Welcome back, everybody. Um, you've, you've been a
1: very loyal audience. Um, I think again, the day has just been so stimulating um, that people have—I certainly can't tell you how much I've enjoyed it. Really looking uh, forward to our third session, which again is as highlighting. The best of Trinity and Columbia. It's panel three is on migration in crisis. Uh, uh, And again, I think it's going to be very much reflecting so many of the themes that we've already uh, been hearing about today. It's uh, moderated by uh, David Reef, who is a visiting research fellow uh, here at um, at the Hub. But of course, he's much more than that. I just had to claim you there, David, very quickly. Um, an extraordinarily uh, distinguished and uh, uh, very well known public intellectual who writes extensively uh, on a whole range uh, of issues. So it's with, with real pleasure um, that I simply invite uh, David to moderate this out third and final session. Please.
2: Thank you. Uh, I'm, yeah, the, the, the role, my, my idea of a moderator is. Someone who largely shuts up, but I will. <laughs> I will simply um, ask a few questions at the end of all four of the fourth presentation and of the panel, because as you'll see, the themes are somewhat uh, different one from the other, and, and there may be some interest in getting each of the panelists to comment on some of the things the other panelists have said. Um, And I'm not really going to introduce people at length because you can read it in the pressures you all have. But we will start with uh, Dr. Rota of the the City University of New
0: York Professor (laughs) of (laughs) History. Thank you. so before I start, I'd like to thank Jane for uh, and Eileen and Colombia um, for giving me the opportunity to speak in this conference. And also, I'd like to thank um, all the staff members here for making my 24-hour stay in Dublin possible. <laughs> um, so today, um, immigration, especially the deportation of undocumented immigrants, foreigners, and entry restriction against Muslims, is one of the most important political, uh, economic, legal, and ethical issues in the United States, and currently the debate over immigration is in many ways shaped by uh, the U.S. President's um, executive orders as well as his own prejudice. But in in any case, many anti-immigrant and pro-immigrant concerns and questions converge in the debate over immigration policy. And these issues include undesirable foreigners alleged threat to American jobs and to the morality of American society. Advocacy of the uncompromising implementation of deportation law, the manner and civility of law enforcement, family disruption as a result of such law enforcement, the rights and welfare of deportable immigrants and their American-born children, humanitarian concerns about the aftermath of deportation, and finally, the tension between states and the federal government over immigration regulation. I'm a historian of American immigration, and this afternoon I'd like to uh, briefly introduce uh, the historical roots of this immigration debate in the US. And specifically, I'd like to discuss how and where these issues over immigration policy, uh, which I just listed, uh, and emerged in the US. And uh, importantly, I think uh, the the origins of of this immigration debate in the US um, are deeply related to the history of Irish people. So let me start with conclusion. We can find uh, the roots of U.S. immigration debate uh, in the experience of Irish emigrants to the U.S. during the Irish famine in the mid-19th century. The story of the Irish famine and its terrible impact is well known um, to every Irish person, of course, and so too is the experience of the Irish who emigrated to, 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 to America where they met harsh nativism. Um, by protestant Americans for their Catholic faith, poverty, and other cultural reasons. Now, what is much less known, even among scholars, historians, is the fact that some Irish migrants were forcibly deported from the United States back to Ireland and Britain uh, as government policy. When the large number of impoverished Irish migrants arrived during the 1840s and 50s, the U.S. state of Massachusetts, uh, one of the major destinations for Irish migrants, Uh, systematically developed uh, laws to prohibit the landing of destitute Irish men and women and to deport those already resident in the U.S. back to Ireland, uh, Canada, and other U.S. states. The Massachusetts officials ruthlessly uh, applied deportation law to the uh, impoverished Irish, and the law enforcement brought about harsh and often tragic consequences for uh, expelled migrants. Some deportees pleaded not to be sent back to Ireland, but then uh, their voices usually fell on deaf ears. And elderly people who had spent as long as 40 years in the US uh, were not exempted from deportation. And uh, sometimes um, um, American officials went so far as to place the children of deaf of Irish immigrants on board an Irish bound ship, even after the parents had run away. And also, the law technically limited. Overseas removal to non citizens. But the uh, uh, American officials had little hesitation in shipping off American citizens of Irish descent, such as American born children of Irish immigrants and naturalized adult Irish immigrants. Moreover, uh, the American officials routinely ignored the welfare of deportees in the process of removal. Those with mental illness received little care and protection during the uh, transatlantic return voyage. And upon arriving in Ireland or Britain, American officials routinely dumped deportees on the streets, like uh, the streets of Cork, Galway, Dublin, or Liverpool, uh, without uh, giving them any basic provisions for self-support, such as um, money, food, and clothes. And as a result, at best, deportees often entered local workhouses for survival, uh, while some of them became street beggars. But at the same time, more unfortunate ones Uh, simply perished during the deportation voyage and others died soon after their arrival in Ireland. Now, at the center of the deportation of the Irish poor were intense cultural pressures against the Irish and also economic concerns about their poverty. Nativist Americans uh, in the 19th century insisted that deportation was a good and necessary policy. And just some Americans today attack undocumented immigrants 19th century nativists uh, called the poor Irish um, uh, as um, uh, leeches upon their taxpayers. payers, I'm just quoting their language back then. And the native Americans in the mid 19th century also advocated the un- uncompromising implementation of the deportation policy to remove quote, an ignorant and vicious Irish Catholic population. And one natives declared that an Irishman will not work while he can exist by begging. The advocacy of Irish deportation was in part supported by an economic argument which will be repeated over and over in American immigration discourse up to today. The deportation policy was driven by antagonism to foreign immigrants who appeared to erode the wages of American workers. An anti-immigrant handbell in the 1840s urged Americans to support immigration restrictions against the Irish. are you content that the immense influx of needy foreigners shall relentlessly reduce your wages to the lowest pittance? Here, I also want to add that, that the advocacy of deportation was framed as, a na- as an issue of national security. Of course, you know, um, it's, it's, it's easy to see that Irish Catholics were seen as threats to the uh, integrity of the American democracy, democratic society rooted in Protestantism. And at the same time, uh, the, poverty of the, the poverty of the Irish was viewed as a threat to the public treasury, as well as public health and uh, the wages. And in, in 1840s, the US Supreme Court upheld state deportation law as an exercise of, of internal police power to expel undesirable foreigners or external threats, uh, calling the law as the, uh, the, the, quote, the sacred law of self-defense. And um, The view of immigration control as a matter of national security and as an uh, exercise of national police power, police power will continue to emerge in the U.S. Uh, whether its targets were Chinese, Japanese, South Asians, Mexicans, terrorists, or more recently, Muslims. And I would like to emphasize that the deportation policy in Massachusetts, which I have to just described, eventually developed into America's first national law to regulate general immigration in the late 19th century. From the late 19th century onward, the major targets of immigration restriction in the US shifted from the Irish to other groups such as Asians and Mexicans. And uh, uh, as Asian-Mexicans were subject to, subjected to immigration control, racism started playing a critical role in American immigration policy. Also, one of the most recent developments is the increasing centrality of the president in immigration issues. Traditionally, Presidents rather hesitate to pursue immigration control because of its possible adverse impact on America's international reputation or diplomacy with foreign nations. But the current president seems to have none of these reservations. But despite these new developments, like racism, presidential centrality, much of the ideological, legal, and institutional foundation for the immigration debate in the US uh, was laid by anti Irish nativism and the state level deportation policy against the Irish during the mid-19th century. Many people tend to think that the problems of American immigration policy are the products of the 20th or 21st century, especially against non-white migrants. But in fact, immigration restriction is a more, is a more uh, deeply rooted tradition in, in American history than is often considered. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Dr. Carota. Um The next speaker is Professor Lorna Carlson a Professor of Linguistics here at Trinity.
3: Thank you. Good
4: afternoon, everyone. I'm, I'm going to start with this story. Um, I come here as a linguist. Language is a skill, it's a capacity, and it's also a marker, and it's something that we can't hide very well. It comes out somehow. Um, one of my students, uh, postgraduate student, mature student, been here for a number of years, came on a diplomatic passport during a PhD, lived in Ballsbridge, for those of you who are from here, it's the leafy um, embassy belt. She went to a gym that I went to, very often, quite a luxurious place, and she was in the pool with her kids, and she was stopped one day, by a lady swimming beside her said, stop speaking that disgusting language. I don't want to hear another word from that dirty language. Silence, she was totally shocked she burst into tears, she pushed her kids away, she left to the showers, and her kids were wondering what was going on, and she, um, she, she was followed by the woman, who continued to say, whatever you're speaking is disgusting and you should speak English to your children. And she came to see me the next day in tears, and I said to her, well I think you should complain to the, to the gym, you need to tell your story. And then how you process this is up to you. I don't know if I would go back there. If you're brave enough, it's up to you. And I, I never find out, actually, what happened if she, if she did leave. A very similar story happened then to one of my research participants. And here I'm going to report on some data that we've collected over the last six years in 18 different cities in Canada and Europe and Australia. And there's a woman in a bus in Dublin, and she's speaking to her father. And she's telling her father what's going on. Her father's sick at home. And the lady starts to abuse her for speaking in this language. And she said, you should go home, go home to where you come from. Here I am at home with no jobs, and my daughter's out of work as well, and you're taking our jobs, and, and the conversation continued. Now, that particular individual was a native Irish speaker, um, speaking Irish to her father <laughs> in Donegal. And the person who abused her uh, racially uh, was an Irish person from Dublin, the Dubliner. So we have a situation where we have intolerance of a language and a lack of knowledge, a lack of ability to distinguish between languages, um, and also to even listen to them. So here we have the same story between Turkish and Irish, and we have a lot of stories like that. Um, so in our in our data, mostly attitudinal uh, research in intensely diverse populations, we essentially have hidden languages, uh, but not so hidden attitudes to those languages and to difference. Um, Turkish comes out in all of our research on, on migration as a language that is not tolerated. Um, when I'm speaking Turkish on the phone, people in the subway tell me to lower my voice. When I speak in German, no one says anything. That was a speaker from Hamburg, from Strasbourg. If you speak Turkish in a busy a place or on a train, people look at you strangely. It's not a curious look, but rather a downgrading look, a different look than when you speak English or French. My daughter was asked why she spoke Turkish. So somehow in our research on multilingualism and diversity, we, ha- we speak hundreds of languages in our, in our cities. In Dublin, more than 200 languages are spoken. They're not visible in the cityscape because they are not valued and they're not seen as prestigious. They may not sell the way other uh, markers do. And sometimes they may not even be audible because of the social pressures to swallow who you are and to repackage yourself in another form. So the attitudes are not quite so invisible. In Bulgaria, in particular, interviewing people um, on attitudes to Turkish and Roma was very difficult. When we asked about the vitality of these languages, whether they will continue in generations to come, we were told by one group, have no fears about the Roma language, it's never going to disappear. They have so many babies that they will have more Roma speakers than Bulgarians in 20 years from now. And one of our researchers, um, you know, a young postgraduate student, had to leave the room, and, and she, she found that very, very hard to hear. So clearly there are prestigious attitudes to language. German, French, Spanish, Italian, these are all prestigious and valued languages. Arabic, Urdu, Punjabi, these are not valued or prestigious languages. And yet all of them represent the human capacity for self-expression, and in fact represent our capacity for creativity. can add to the economic capital of our city, can add to the touristic value and attractions of our city. So why do we continue to have this two-tier attitude? Well, clearly, because we have a two-tier attitude to the speakers of the languages. A very wise respondent in one of our interviews said, I think that we are not terribly attuned to language generally. On a personal level, I'm probably asked three times a week what language I'm speaking when I'm speaking Irish by Irish people. When people ask what language I'm speaking, the response is always, well, I always hated Irish in school, I can't stand it. It always initiates a strong emotional response, whether it's positive or negative. So language is core to identity and self-expression, to our well-being, to our creativity and capital, and yet our education systems in Ireland are clearly not teaching about otherness and acceptance and self-expression. So my question, my research question in this, is how can we be comfortable with difference how can self-expression of the other be something that we tolerate? I'd like to point out uh, a lovely contradiction from the city of Strasbourg. I was at the bank, my own bank, um, in the small town, and at the counter there was a Turkish female member of staff, and she was talking to that customer in front in Turkish. That shocked me. I don't agree with that. We're in France. We speak French. I didn't understand what she was saying. I had the impression that we had been transported to Turkey. We speak French here. We are in France. We don't speak another language. A few minutes later, the same respondent said, I was in Strasbourg and I got a pair of trousers for my child. There were some Germans beside me and the shop assistant couldn't speak a single word of German. So it was me who interpreted. It felt strange. I was in the middle of buying something and I acted as an interpreter because the customer wanted information and neither the cashier nor shop assistant spoke a single word of German and yet we are beside the border. And the single respondent contained this contradiction himself and couldn't express it, so tolerance and intolerance. Um, one of our famous uh, stories that we use when we're teaching this is Nigel Farage's experience on the train in London that took him about 10 stops before he could hear a word of English spoken, which he said made him feel very uncomfortable, indeed awkward. And he said, does that make me feel slightly awkward? Yes, it does. I don't feel very comfortable in that situation. This is not the kind of community we want to leave to our children and grandchildren. I think we all know Nigel Farage's wife is a German speaker and his children are bilingual German-English speakers. It seems unusual that Nigel Farage's home environment cannot be transported to a train carriage. And I think the essence of this is that the monolingual thinks that when we speak another language, we are speaking about them. We are speaking about him or her. Nigel Farage, very uncomfortable when he heard everything going on and all of the languages in the world around him asked, I wonder what's really going on.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, The next speaker is Rosemary Byrne, Professor of Law here at Trinity. Thank you, and and thank you to my colleagues.
5: I'm going to segue a bit if I can get the microphone. Uh Uh, I'm going to segue a bit uh, to give a lawyer's perspective on migration, which is always a bit uh, of a sign that the panel's going on a downward slide. Uh, But what's interesting, actually, about your discussion of attitudes, both historically and in terms of people's responses to difference in language, is that law, and particularly human rights law, which is my area, effectively tries to short-circuit, to trump these... Darker inclinations that we see in communities and societies. But what's happened with the migrant crisis is we've really begun to see, at least within the community of advocates, and, and those of us that, that work in the field often produce what is somewhat, um, uh, I think, questionably referred to as kind of a brand of advocacy scholarship, that we've kind of lost the narrative. Uh, and in thinking about that, you have to kind of go back to 2011, which isn't quite going as far back as, as you have. But if you look at the period of time when the crisis began to be on the radar in Europe, it wasn't just the, the migration crisis. It was a crisis uh, of sovereignty and banks of legitimacy in the EU. And in fact, if you look at attitudinal surveys, the only thing that people actually agreed about during the time period was that the EU was doing a lousy job that 98% of Greeks, not surprisingly, 88% of Swedes thought that the EU was mishandling the migrant crisis. And the human rights community became embedded in this discussion as to, is this a crisis at all? You're only talking about 1 million out of a population of 22 million of the world's refugees, almost all of whom are in the global south is can we really even call this a crisis when you think about the abundant resources comparatively that the North has in relationship to the South? Or is this a crisis rather of attitudes, of reception, of policy? All of these discussions ended up emerging in terms of trying to identify where the blame should lie, not so much in terms of identifying where the solution might be. But in looking at the period as to whether or not we had a crisis, and to the taboo in some communities of even using the word crisis. Um, You do have to recognize that between 2000 and 2014, you had over 22,000, and unofficial estimates are much higher, uh, of deaths recorded in the Mediterranean. Clearly, that is a crisis of humanitarian dimensions, and you really can't uh, avoid that. But what you also have in Europe, and I think it's been discussed this morning, is a rise in populism, that the immigration has been the issue in terms of reforming the European Union as we're now sliding from 28 to 27 members. Migration is really at its center. So if you take a Gramscian definition of what a crisis is, you know, that the old is dying and the new has yet to be born then from that perspective, we're certainly in the middle of a crisis. And the problem that we have is we're very locked into our old ways of thinking. And the law tends to take a rather, particularly human rights law, tends to take a rather absolutist approach in terms of migration. Again, it's a process of short-circuiting some of the more difficult discussions about how we envision future society. In Europe, effectively, asylum translates into permanent resettlement. And Kai Holbriner, a German immigration lawyer, referred to the EU asylum system as good weather law. And the EU asylum system, which has many, many problems, but it is the most elaborate and developed framework for asylum protection in the world. And yet what we've seen is the first arrival of large numbers of asylum seekers and it's collapsed that there's a great need at this point in time for creativity. And we're not seeing it on the global level, with the Global Compact, where the High Commissioner for Human Rights very clearly uh, observed in the aftermath uh, of of the outcome of the declaration that there was no comfort to be gained from the current situation for migrants. that it's on the long finger. But the problem, I think, that arises for uh, the profession of human rights advocates is there are many issues that we haven't really been discussing. We haven't looked at what the implications are for the long-term development of societies. For the fact that when asylum seekers come, asylum is permanent resettlement. For In 2015, the number of deportations for those that had, were in receipt of order, denied uh, asylum seekers, clandestine migrants as an irregular situation, uh, was 36%. So effectively, you're talking about two-thirds of migrants, regardless of their legal status, remain within the European Union. And yet the one area of law which has not been developed by the EU, for a variety of reasons, because it tends to be very nation-specific, has been the area of integration. So perhaps one of the greatest challenges, and particularly where we've seen the anti-migrant sentiment within Europe and and the the, uh, political consequences, is one area that has been deftly ignored by policymakers. Uh, And it is probably the one area where it's not very clear if you talk to specialists in that area that the solutions are clear uh, in terms of how we move forward. So I think in just um, thinking about uh, the nature of the crisis and the desire to seize the narrative back from a human rights-based perspective uh, raises, I think, the challenge of human rights lawyers, advocates, civil society to make sure that the void that is left in the discussions about migration is actually being filled by their voices, their ideas, their risk-taking in terms of departing from old approaches. Uh, And if they don't, that void, as we've seen, is being filled uh, by individuals who are across Europe gaining considerable political support. Uh, So in in general, that's my... my, um, uh, short-term talk, I think it brings to, to mind uh, David Kennedy's uh, pithy expression where he observes that speaking law to power is not the same as speaking truth to power. Mm-hmm. And I think that as much as, as a lawyer by training and orientation, uh, human rights law has its limitations uh, and that it's only by working across disciplines uh, and across communities that we might be able to come up with more innovative solutions uh, that can deal with inward migration, principle <coughs> and dignity at the forefront of the discussion. Uh, in closing, I'll just say Jillian and I swapped places uh, with the, uh, because of uh, I was aware I'm a bit negative, uh, a bit pessimistic, and she had, she's going to uplift you a bit more in terms of what the future narrative might be. So uh, in saying that, I'll, I'll conclude
2: So, as Rosemary has already telegraphed, uh, the next speaker is Professor Gillian Wiley, Professor of Peace
3: uh, Studies. Thank you very much, and um, as the day has worn on, I've almost become afraid to say what I want to say, Um, (laughs) and uh, to sound hopelessly idealistic, um, um, and I guess in the tradition of peace studies, it's better to light candles and than curse the dark, so I go on regardless. Having said that, I am going to start with, with uh, another look at the problem. Um, so when I was on my way home from work last Friday night, and that lovely Friday night feeling that you're going home and it's the weekend, and I stopped in the supermarket and I see the Daily Express headline from last Friday, at least 56,000 migrants, including criminals and illegal immigrants, are on the run in Britain. There are just so many weasel words in that combination. The deliberate vagueness about the numbers, at least, so you mean probably more, including, well, that probably means all of them, and then at least three references connecting migrants to crime in just 14 words. That blatant word criminals, then the association of migration with illegality, and then on the run, designed to create the sense of uncontrolled danger and them lurking amongst us. So this headline is just one example of contemporary public discourse that does connect migration to crime and security threats and we've heard a lot about the political connections that are made uh, around that today and how fake news and the manipulation of truth is creating fear of the migrant other and we just heard some examples from uh, Lorna's work as well about the fear of the other uh, manifests itself and how populism thrives time we heard that too about the securitization of migration which uh, is a very common tendency in contemporary uh, migration policy but as Hideo was explaining is very much has a history of more than uh, 100 years or more. Uh, in my own research which has been about the international politics surrounding human trafficking um, the issue of the connections being made between migration, movement and crime has become very clear to me. For most people who are concerned about human trafficking, uh, at least from a a civil society perspective, it's an issue of exploitation uh, of human rights. But for states, uh, and the the agenda that has been created around trafficking since uh, the UN has uh, developed a framework around it in the year 2000, it's very much about uh, stopping transnational organised crime. The uh, Anti-Trafficking protocol belongs within the UN Convention on Transnational Organised Crime, and many states use the language of anti-trafficking when they are um, legitimising securitised responses to migration. That's something we've seen very clearly. We talked this morning about Hungary, uh, the Hungarian border fence, um, and NATO ships in the Mediterranean. When you hear politicians, EU politicians, uh, explaining why they're doing this uh, repulsion of migrants at sea or at the border fences, they very often refer to them as anti-human trafficking measures. So they use an idea that seems to have human rights implications and twist it to fit a politics of expulsion and securitisation. What's clear though for most critical scholars of security is that these attempts to securitize Um, issues like migration and many others in the contemporary world, uh, only manifests further insecurities for everyone. Didier Bigo, a critical IR scholar, uh, he talks about the analogy of a Mobius strip. That's a mathematical concept of a loop that looks like it's two-sided, but is in fact one-sided. And he's using it to suggest this entanglement of security and insecurity. He writes... Migration, border controls and their technologies do not solve the insecuritisation of borders, rather, they propagate fears of mobility through their everyday routines. Enhanced measures to restrict crossing and to securitise borders produce new markets for unregulated means of crossing and they end up enhancing and driving human smuggling and trafficking. For those of us inside the border fences, our sense of being secure is constantly undermined by the kind of headlines you meet in the supermarket on a Friday night. And the insecurity of those on the receiving end of these policies is extreme. Last April, for instance, the New Yorker magazine carried a very devastating article about the development in uh, asylum-seeking children in Sweden on a now-recognized medical syndrome, resignation syndrome, where when families get deportation orders the children collapse into an absolute coma um, that has affected more than 400 children and has now been written about in The Lancet and so on. The one, doc- the one doctor who treats these children in their coma-like state says their experience will only end when they experience Swedish, a word that in English translates as security but which has a broader meaning in Swedish. It means trust, a sense of belonging, freedom from danger, anxiety and fear. So my background in international relations and the critical IR scholar in me can see the problems, can see these uh, moves towards the securitization of migration. The peace studies person in me is compelled to ask, are there ways in which the lines of conflict between migrants and hosts and these insecurities can be reconciled for all us humans caught in these fearful times? So it's in light of that question that I want to pose a few more hopeful thoughts about the politics of peace building in the context of this crisis which faces migrants in our world today. Peace studies uh, understands peace to be not just the ending of direct and physical violence but also the ending of structural and cultural forms of violence. Structural violence relates to the social and political and economic systems that prevent human flourishing, cultural violence to attitudes which foment divisions. We should recognise the causes of the current global experience of displacement come from direct violence, war, structural violence, poverty and inequality, we heard that this morning, and cultural violence, these us and them mentalities. It may be too much to suggest solutions to all of these that don't sound too grandiose or madly utopian in these last two minutes, um, except to point out they're all humanly created issues that are not intrinsically unsolvable. But instead, I want to look at a model of peace building that's drawn from the work of John Paul Lederach, who looks at ways we can transform conflicts through building relationships, listening to local activism, and integrating peace initiatives from elite levels to the grassroots and uh, and the other way around. Speaking of solutions to the migrant crisis, Bridget Anderson, who's the Professor of Citizenship at Oxford University, suggests two important possibilities which tallied with this peace building framework. Looking to political elites, she argues that those of us concerned to build inclusive societies should catch at and support what she calls even the slivers of progressive politics we see. Despite the prevalence of securitisation, framing these do exist. Obviously, we talked this morning about Germany's unprecedented Bier Schaffendass' response to migration in 2015, but even now that that has been backed away from to a great extent, other things persist. The Portuguese government, for instance, has framed higher education as an essential element of humanitarian response and is helping to fund many uh, university students from Syria to travel to Portugal to complete their studies. In Ireland, recent legal and civic pressure to allow asylum seekers to seek the right to work is another example of how we can see political change around issues of asylum coming about. At another level, Anderson suggests we need to lend support to grassroots and civil initiatives which can support migrants and lead to more inclusion. And I think we spent a lot of time this morning talking about universities. And I think we talked very wisely um, and uh, with great uh, hope in, in the terms of what we can do just in terms of the purpose of a university as an intellectual space, a space to create critical thinkers. There's so much more we can be doing as well, and I know from working with many colleagues around the university uh, that we are concerned, for instance, to see can we become, as other universities have done in Ireland and the UK and elsewhere, a university of sanctuary, a place which is officially a place of welcome and uh, support to migrants, asylum seekers and refugees. Um, the work to do that has started in DCU in um, University of Limerick and is underway here as well. So we have to find ways in which uh, we can work towards a politics of inclusion. Maybe starting where we're at, because I do agree uh, that the, the, we do live in dark times, and it seems most of the issues we are facing uh, are 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 frighteningly difficult to uh, come up with solutions to. Uh, another thing Anderson suggests is that instead of calling into the politics of them and us, uh, people who are marginalised in societies perhaps have things in common around housing, around education and so on where they can find common cause and I know for instance the trade union movement tries to do this now by looking at how uh, the rights of migrant workers and uh, Irish workers can be realised together and so on. So I just want to end, I suppose, by saying that the securitization of migration is provoking fear and isolating communities from one another. Securitization is a self-fulfilling prophecy. It makes us all insecure. The only way to break the Mobius strip uh, and create a more peaceful and secure response is to build relationships, is to break through isolation, to act in empathy, to take decisions at political levels which do work in the favor of rights, safety, and inclusion. And I think if we try to do some of these things, then perhaps we might face into the darkness with some hope. Thank you. Thank
2: you. Uh, so if I'd been on this panel, I would have been far more pessimistic than anyone, I think, than all of you put together. So you will, must forgive me for what I will ask each of you, one rather, I don't know if it's provocative or provoking, but... Uh, question about uh, what you're arguing. So perhaps I could start in the reverse order and ask, Jillian, what about terrorism? You don't mention terrorism, and yet terrorism is not made up. And terrorism is a problem in terms of having been exacerbated by the arrival of large numbers of people, some of whom are very tempted by very murderous views. So, uh, you know, you can make you can make securitization an epithet, but I think if people start saying, you know, I, uh, you know, eight people were killed four blocks from where I live by a man who mm-hmm. came from Uzbekistan, mm-hmm. and that's a fact. That's not a mm-hmm. that's not paranoia. That's not the Daily Mail. Mm-hmm. That's real. So you know, may I ask you to comment on that?
3: Yeah, sure. And that is it's surely a difficult issue, but I think it's also very important to always keep um, some awareness of um, complicated stories. So we know for instance that many of the terrorist uh, attacks that have happened in Europe um, have been uh, caused by people who are second, third generation uh, members of European societies, citizens of Europe. Um, And therefore I think um, Immediately after the Paris attacks, they were connected to the emergence, the coming of migrants into into Europe in that particular time. But the the truth, as it emerged, around who were the people uh, involved in the attack uh, were were kids who had grown up in um, in the European states. So um, I think there can be no easy connection made between migration and terror. Um, and I think. Um, we have to understand and look for the roots of terror in in um, in other the uh, combination of factors which would um, um, include um, disenfranchisement of young people, um, particularly young men. The issue of gender came up this morning but didn't get enough airplay, so we maybe need to come back to that. Um, the role of social media um, and so on. So I think uh, we need to be wary of, of making Straight lines and
2: connections between migration and terror. Um, thank you. Um, I'm not going to follow up, so that if people want to do that, uh, it doesn't seem the moderator's job. Um,
1: but it would be much more agreeable indeed. Uh,
2: so, uh, President, can you talk about what you mentioned in passing about the question about whether? this is a human rights crisis, or whether human rights, the human rights mindset or worldview or methodology is the one that can be as useful in the future as in the past.
5: Well, I, I mean, I guess I think the treatment of migrants and some of the abuses that are happening within Europe, and I think that's what really needs to be emphasized, is that um, we tend to think of the uh, silent seekers as fleeing from persecution uh, and indeed of mixed migrants that are arriving, not all of them who may have a legal entitlement to remain within the European Union, but once they're arriving, the conditions within which they're received, uh, the incentives that are structured through often uh, quite, I think, uh, strategically developed uh, national practices which sends them Forward onto other countries so you have mass secondary movements of people who've completely fallen through the cracks of, of protection that's a serious human rights human rights crisis and it's one of which Europe and Europeans have been complicit in uh, and I think it, it, that is a, is a very serious issue but in terms of the migration crisis generally and here I think I, w- I would differ with Gillian I think you have a far rosier outlook on the human spirit and I wish I shared that. But I think the situation is really the situation we 're in now is and and, and this i don 't mean antagonistically, but I feel very strongly the situation that we 're in now is a result of the very optimistic picture about migration within Europe that is not that is taking into account the importance of progressive human rights views but not engaging with the other, and the other isn't the migrant, the other are people who are indeed resistant or concerned about inward migration of all sorts. And unless you open up that discussion, and unless you engage head-on with those concerns, then I think you have a problem. And with human rights law, you know, law trumps these issues. And even when you're talking about the direct provision in, in, in Ireland, that change did not come about, and a really important change, in terms of the dignity of people in, in really appalling circumstances and direct provision, that was brought about by the courts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, law has tremendous power, but I think we can't let law actually subvert the democratic process or else it's going to come back to haunt communities.
2: Thank you. Um, Lorna, let me, you mentioned, you know, the, the dislike of, in uh, effect, global South languages. In Europe versus pleasure, or at least uh, absolute norm, viewing as normal languages, uh, European languages. And I, 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 I'm just going to give you, uh, and you also say you have the richness of these languages, etc., etc., but surely there is a point when the people who were in a place that spoke one language actually discover that they're not understood anywhere. Your examples are all pluses, but what about the English-speaking person in Miami who discovers that the whole neighborhoods of... I mean, I, I lived in Miami, and I am a native... I mean, I'm a more or less native Spanish speaker. So, I mean, I don't have a problem speaking Spanish, but I largely speak Spanish in Miami. And where does that leave, say, African Americans, most of whom don't speak a word of Spanish? Uh, it, I think it's just a little more complicated than you're making, at least in your presentation, made it out to be.
4: Sure, and I think the, the question of language ghettoization it, it is, a, is a serious one. And not feeling that you're at home in your neighborhood is something that was expressed right across uh, Canada, Australia, and in our European data. Um, that's a problem not of speech communities, but of cities and how we, how we organize and how we live but it's also a problem of our education system. So education systems which are not encouraging home language use, so children maintain their home languages, their first languages, but use those languages not as their unique sense of self-expression, but in fact as a springboard to acquire the language of the host community. And without fully functioning competence in the language of the host community, and maintaining home languages, we, we can never be the type of society where we feel comfortable with the other. Um, and we have a few examples of those glimmers or, or slivers of good policy in Ireland where children are being encouraged to maintain their Arabic, maintain their Turkish, but darn well speak full uh, academic English, um, be able to write correctly and also acquire Irish. And, and that is working. But if we, if we only go for the, I'm, I'm facilitating home languages at the expense of the host language, integration will never work. So prioritising English, French, German, whatever the, the, the language of the home city must be a number one priority. Um, and actually, home language use can facilitate that. We often use the, the iceberg um, metaphor in linguistics where you have the two peaks of different languages or three peaks of different languages. But underneath, there's a heck of a lot going on. And it's important to maintain that. Otherwise,
2: you'll always be a stranger at home. Thank you. Hide, could I ask you to talk about the politics of Irish people rather than their victimization? And what I'm thinking of, of course, is the anti-black riots in New York during the American Civil War, which were largely, as you know, better probably than I do, Irish-led.
0: That's a very important question, and first of all, it, um, it, it's it's very important not to too much victimize the Irish, uh, because as you, precisely as as you said, um, I, Irish people, immigrants in the U.S. Um, were uh, major group that oppressed um, African Americans, and in the in, in on the East Coast, and then Chinese immigrants on the West Coast, right? Um, now the, the, his, his, from historians perspective uh, I think the question is why you know what what, what explains this uh, very strong anti uh, black sentiment among uh, among the Irish and um, several ex- explanations uh, can be provided one is the traditional traditional one is economic competition you know as, as a you know uh, met people at the bottom of society uh, Irish immigrants um, um, wanted to secure you know make sure that they, they were speared to some other groups of people, and African Americans were easy targets for that. Um, that. This has been traditional explanation for the uh, 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 Irish anti-black, uh, and Irish pro-slavery, and a more interesting, perhaps, uh, explanation um, is something related to uh, the kind of transnational history of Irish migration, um, that is, uh, during the famine, again, once again, um, Slaveholders in the American South uh, sent donations um, to Ireland. And uh, of course the uh, starving Irish people appreciated uh, the donation from the uh, slaveholders, but then the nationalists slash abolitionist in Ireland said uh, Irish people should not accept this money uh, from slaveholders, uh, which they called blood-stained money. You know, this, this money was out of the, you know, brutal slave labor. So, uh, if Irish people wanted to stick with humanitarianism, um, we should, you know, you should, you know, uh, decline this over. And that really infuriated, uh, ordinary Irish people, uh, you know, um, this, this anti-slavery sentiment kind of, you know, worsened the, the, the starvation of Irish people. So, with this kind of opposition to abolitionist anti-slavery movement, um, Irish, Irish Irish people emigrated to the U.S. and then they encountered African Americans, and they, they they naturally inherited and retained this uh, pro-slavery sentiment, right? So so, so with this, um, they became very uh, uh, aggressive uh, pro-slavery force uh, in in the U.S. And one last thing that I want to mention is um, the the Irish racism really helps us. Um, not to exaggerate anti Irish nativism. Um, I think nativism was very intense against the Irish, but, but at the same time, we should not forget that you know, Irish people were still white people. They could naturalize uh, um, to become American citizens, and this naturalization right was entirely denied to uh, black people, and uh, black people could not vote, uh, and the Chinese immigrants could not vote either. And uh, so, so even though the Irish were discriminated against severely in the 19th century, in the mid-19th century, precisely because of their political power arising from their right to vote, uh, they they could eventually uh, uh, achieve uh, mobility in American society. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: also add a few words of thanks uh, to the people who've made today possible. Um, we've obviously delighted uh, to be working uh, with the Hayman and Eileen and her team. Uh, the team here in the Trinity Long Room Hub have done tremendous work, both uh, in terms of organising last night and today. Today could not have been, I think, a more intellectually uh, stimulating set of conversations. They're all available, or will be available online. I also, those of you who can't make it to New York on Thursday and Friday, I would we've encouraged a few of you to think about just forget the rest You're of the week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A, exactly. But you'll be able to continue to listen to the conversations at least, because I think we'll also podcast the uh, uh, Heyman uh, discussions um, here in the Trinity Long Room Hub. This is a conversation that will continue here in Dublin and, of course, in partnership with with Columbia. Um, It's been, as I say, a tremendous day. We're extraordinarily grateful to you all for coming, for the fabulous engagement. Um, Great questions, and uh, it really, as I say, you couldn't have been a better audience. But above all, I just want to thank all of our speakers and all of our amazing moderators, including, of course, David this afternoon. So thank you all very much indeed. (laughs)